This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. 20th century American religion would not have been the same without the steady behind-the-scenes work of Eugene Xman, an Ohio farm boy who went on to become one of this country's most influential editors of religion books. Through relationships with religious leaders like Dorothy Day, Harold Thurman, and Martin Luther King Jr., Xman published works that shifted American religious discourse away from denominational boundaries and toward personal, individual experiences of God. On this episode, Special Projects editor Miles Doyle speaks with Boston University professor of religion Stephen Prothero, author of the new Xman biography, God the Best Seller, How One Editor Transformed American Religion, One Book at a Time. That's coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Miles. It's good to see you today. Good to see you too, Dominic. You're our special projects editor, which means you're involved with a lot of the big centennial plans that we have in store for our centennial in 2024. But occasionally, and thankfully, you're free to help us out here on the podcast. And this is an interview that I'm pretty interested in hearing. So why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Thank you. I was able to speak with Stephen Prothero, a professor of religion in America at Boston University. He's the author of a number of books on the subject, including the New York Times bestseller, Religious Literacy. He and I discuss his new book, which is, I believe, the first book about an influential editor named Eugene Xman, God the Bestseller, which basically traces the arc of religion in 20th century America. You know, what's fascinating about this is that Xman arrived at Harper and Row in 1928, a few years after he earned his seminary degree at the University of Chicago. And almost immediately, he played an integral role in shaping public discussion of religion. He's really a fascinating figure, and it's a fascinating story, and I think our listeners are going to enjoy hearing more about it. Okay. Thanks, Miles. Let's take a listen. Stephen Prothero, welcome to the Commonweal Podcast. Thanks for having me. Your new book traces the arc of religion in 20th century America through the books of one of the most influential editors of the era. So who was Eugene Xman? Eugene Xman was a Ohio farm boy. He was born in 1900, right the cusp of the 20, 20th century. And he became the most influential religion editor in the United States in the middle part of the 20th century and had a huge influence on both mid-20th century American religion and culture, but also on the culture we live in today, specifically through his emphasis on religion as essentially about feeling, essentially personal, essentially experiential, and also his influence on this idea that all religions are one. But he also had a fascinating personal life that was really kicked off by a mystical experience he had as a teenager. And that really set the agenda, I believe, for the rest of his life, where he kept trying to recreate that experience, find people who had similar experiences, have conversations with them, turn them into his friends, and in many cases, turn them into his authors. Exman arrived at Harper and Rose Religious Book Division in 1928 a few years after he earned his seminary degree at the University of Chicago. He was, as you put it in the book, on a mission to expand the popular understanding of the religious book and to stretch its audience far beyond the pews. Can you describe briefly the world of religion book publishing Exman entered? Yeah, that's a good question. The world was denominational. So Lutheran pastors, ministers would write books that Lutherans would buy and that would be sold in Lutheran bookstores. And Baptist pastors would write books for Baptists sold in Baptist bookstores. 
And X-Men had this idea that there's a lot of ministers who have things to say that would be of interest to other Christians and even to people who aren't Christians, even to people of other religions and maybe people of no religions. And so he was really thinking about shifting the book publishing industry and religion from denominational publishing to religion publishing so that you could find some interesting and smart minister or Baptist minister like Harry Emerson Fosdick, and he could write a book in the psychology of religion that a lot of people would want to read about because it was about becoming a real person, becoming your best person. And what was Baptist about that? And even what was Christian about that? That's a broader concept. So throughout his career, he was just broadening the parochialism from Lutheran to Christian to religious. And then finally, toward the end of his career, to multi-religious, where he's publishing Catholics, he's publishing Jewish authors, he's publishing Hindus and Buddhists. And all this in service of a broader market, right? If you can only sell a book in a Lutheran bookstore to Lutherans, you're not going to sell as many books as if you can sell them in the 20s equivalent of Barnes and Noble in a big general bookstore to just about anybody who might have some interest in religion. So he really transformed that industry. And we see the effects of it now where people just keep pushing the boundaries, right, of what, what counts for religion, what counts for spirituality, even getting rid of the word religion altogether in order to have a more capacious idea of what this publishing in the realm of meaning making might be. And just for context, as a publisher, almost immediately when he started at Harper and Rowe, he started playing an integral role in shaping public discussion of religion. And over his five-decade career, he published thousands of books, had hundreds of bestsellers. Eight of his titles were included in the list of 100 best spiritual books of the 20th century. So he definitely had his finger on the pulse of the country, and he seemed to anticipate things that other publishers and editors didn't necessarily do. Was it strictly that idea of being able to broaden the audience and the perspective? I think that's part of it. I write about him as a middle brow figure who is taking academic research or taking theologians who are writing pretty highfalutin books and getting them to translate, sometimes with the help of his ghostwriters, sometimes with the help of his editors in his own hand, translate those big ideas into stuff ordinary people could understand. And his preoccupation was with experience because of that teenage mystical experience he had. And I think the country was moving with him in that direction, that they were hungry in a period after World War I and then after World War II or amidst World War II in the early and middle part of the 20, 20th century for meaning, for experiences that mattered, for some response to what many felt was a crisis of meaning, a onslaught of meaninglessness that came with the Great Depression, that came with World War I and World War II. And he felt that. He personally felt that. And he felt that religion was the answer in a period where a lot of people were saying, religion is the problem. Um, and he said, no, religion is the problem when it's institutional and organized. And it's enlisted in war and killing and hatred. But religion is the solution when it originates with a personal, individual interaction with the divine that then calls you out of your self-interest into action in the world, into 
action against war, for example, which he was in, involved with, or in action on behalf of civil rights, which he was also in, involved with. Like any good publisher, he had a sense of what would sell, but he also had a sense of where you might be calling your reader to, right? Readers want to be challenged. They want to be pushed into some new space that they hadn't thought about before. And I think he was really good at sensing both where Americans were and where they might be going if they were pushed a little bit. William James was a towering figure in X-Men's life. The varieties of religious experience convinced X-Men of the idea that religion is not about dogmas or rituals. It's about personal experience. I wonder if you would read a brief passage from the book that details many of the core religious impulses X-Men took from him. Like James, X-Men wanted to create a way for people who wanted to be religious to stand among the faithful without slouching with shame. X-Men also derived from James many of his core religious impulses, his conviction that religion is good, that the best fruits of a religious experience are the best things that history has to show, his preference for firsthand experiences over secondhand dogma, his disdain for institutionalized religion, and his fascination with religious eccentrics, his deep-seated suspicion that ordinary consciousness is not all there is, his commitment to the careful investigation of seemingly outlandish practices such as seances and clairvoyance and mental telepathy and ESP, his principled fuzziness about the divine, his repulsion by the dull habit of church pews and prayer books, and his attraction to the acute fever of those rare religious geniuses to whom the unseen divine is made manifest, his empathy for religious outsiders, including Buddhists, Hindus, and participants in new religious movements, accompanied by his insistence on viewing them from a Protestant center, which is always and everywhere assumed, his curiosity about the connection between hallucinogenic drugs and mystical experiences, his allergy to easy certainties, his anti-imperialism, anti-tribalism, and hostility to war, and finally, his democratic conviction that religion is felt rather than thought and that it can be experienced by anyone, even a 16-year-old farm boy. While you rightly point out that X-Men commodified James's ideas on that same page, I doubt anyone would deny X-Men's utter devotion to them, specifically his fascination with quote-unquote religious geniuses or saintly eccentrics, which brings us, of course, to Dorothy Day. You devote an entire chapter in the book to the publication of her memoir, The Long Loneliness. X-Men's wish to work with Day makes complete sense, given what we know about both personalities. But X-Men was facing a pretty serious anti-Catholic bias, both within publishing and the culture at large. Can you speak briefly about this bias? Yeah, so, so X-Men's Protestant. X-Men was raised Baptist. X-Men's identity as a Christian is shifting in this period where he's interacting with Dorothy Day in the late 40s, early 50s, to the point where he sees himself more as a religious person than a Christian person. But he's still really formed by Protestantism. And Protestantism, of course, is a protest against what? Catholicism. And part of what it's protesting is those darn priests and those rituals they do and the mumbo jumbo they speak in some foreign language. And so it's really deep set. And even among the pluralist Protestants, even among Protestants like X-Men and his friends at Harper, who are almost entirely white Protestants, who are attracted to Hinduism, are attracted to Buddhism, are attracted to Judaism, but they still think religion should look a certain way. And the way it should look is like 
the way it looked in the churches that, where they grew up. And so one of the things that happens with him and with Dorothy Day is there's a kind of tussle between how she should be addressing Catholics and how she should be addressing general readers. And this comes up all the time in the X-Men literature with his writers. Could you just be a little broader? Don't be so Baptisty. just be Christian-y, or don't be so Christian-y, just be religious. You know, what struck me about it is, is I don't, it doesn't seem clear that X-Men was ever really fully to overcome this bias, right? His publishing team, for instance, never called Day a Catholic in his promotional and marketing campaigns for her memoir. They instead referred to her as St. Francis of the City Streets. And Day herself admitted that while she was more than willing to write in a way that non-Catholics could understand, she came to resent how X-Men and his team tried to recast her story in their own Protestant image. Is there something here that shows some the limits to X-Men's religious pluralism, or at least point to its inherent tensions? I think that's right. I think it definitely underscores the limits to the pluralism. I think when I was a graduate student many years ago, I had this relatively naive view about the United States shifting from being a Protestant country, and I don't mean now by law, like culturally Protestant country, to a culturally, religiously pluralistic country. And President Obama was talking about the United States as a nation of Hindus and Jews and Buddhists and Catholics and non-believers along those lines. But the reality is that pluralism is itself shaped by the religious space out of which it grows. And so in this case, you have a Protestant pluralism, a pluralism with a Protestant bias, where religion is defined, even though the word religion is used instead of Christianity or Protestantism, that religion is defined in Protestant ways. And so it wants to have Protestant sensibilities. It wants to feel that it's modern. It wants to think that it's focusing on experiences like liberal, liberal Protestants do. And so there was a review in an in-house review by Marguerite Bro of a book by Dorothy Day about her favorite saint, Teresa of Lisieux. And the review said, this book is disgusting. This book is masochistic. This book is sadistic. Like, this book is pre-modern. Like, why are we elevating this saint who just glories in her suffering? Shouldn't we be publishing books to help people overcome their suffering? What's wrong with these people? And then Marguerite Bro has this telling note in this letter to X-Men where she says, let them publish that. Why do we have to publish that? And you see the we there is we like proper modern liberal Protestants and the them is the backward looking Catholics. We should note too that part of X-Men's team was very helpful in helping, it was very helpful to Dorothy Day in writing the memoir. And X-Men himself was very complimentary of Catholic publishers, Catholic editors, and Catholic writers often referring to the quality and excellence of the work coming out of Catholic presses. So it wasn't an entire pervasive bias, but these were actual obstacles that Dorothy Day had to overcome in developing the manuscript and Exxon himself had to overcome with her while he was publishing it. And you note something that toward the end of the chapter where, unlike all of his other writers or collaborators, he did not have a personal relationship with Dorothy Day, even though they had a great overlap in interest, mysticism for one, and that's shared lived experiences of faith. But yet, like, they couldn't make that connection personally. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think, and there's different levels of that connection, right? So he doesn't really have, his X-Men has a very close connection with 
the civil rights pioneer and sometimes referred to as the mentor of the civil rights movement, Howard Thurman, who publishes maybe a dozen books for X-Men and they're very good friends. He's not as close with King, Martin Luther King, and King was busy. Dorothy Day was busy. Dorothy Day wasn't like sitting around. Gee, I wonder, I had to go have lunch with Gene X-Men. I had to wander in and have a nice lunch with him. Not doing that. She's so busy putting out fires at her various houses of hospitality and getting out the Catholic worker and protesting and going to jail and doing all that stuff. And so I think that's part of it. But I also think that he was moving in a world that she had left. He was moving in this world of middle class, upper middle class, white Protestant intellectuals. And that wasn't her world. She had glimpsed a little bit of that world when she was younger. And that wasn't a world she really wanted to be in. She understood that there were things to get in that space. She was really motivated to get a down payment on land she wanted to buy in Staten Island. And what was thought, it? What the advance was a thousand dollars? Yeah. She and she like she needed a thousand dollars and she marched in to Exxon. You're gonna give me a thousand dollars to publish the book. And Exxon's like, I actually am. I will do that. Yes, that sounds good to me. So, and she does have complimentary things to say. There's a funny, there's a funny line she says somewhere to someone where she says, and when you publish for places like Harper, you have to actually write grammatically. Of course, she wrote grammatically in The Catholic Worker. I don't know exactly what she was talking about, but I think part of what she meant was you can't just spend a half an hour or an hour writing a column and pop it out into The Catholic Worker. You need to think about craft. You need to be thinking about how you're crafting this book. And the Harper editors did do that with her. They did push her in some directions that I think made The Long Loneliness better and also Loaves and Fishes, which they also published with her, made it made it better as well. But she did have to keep rubbing against their assumptions. And the way they would put it was, write it for Protestants too. Write it for, or don't make it only be Catholics who you're writing the book for. And this is a really tricky thing, especially when you're writing autobiography, right? Because there's always a little implied thing about, can you just be a little less Catholic, please? Can the character of Dorothy Day in this book be a little less Catholic than the real Dorothy Day is in real life? Because then we'll sell more books and that'll be good. But also your message will get out to more people. And I think X-Men Kid, he wasn't just a money grubber. He wasn't just in it for the money. He thought he was on a mission. He thought this was a really important thing he was doing in a modern world that was lost to materialism and militarism. And so he felt in common cause with her. And she appreciated, she saw that too. She wanted people to read the book. She didn't want to just get the advances. She wanted people to read her books. We'll have more of Miles' conversation with Stephen Prothero in a minute. I'm Claudia Avila Cosnahan, Director of Mission and Partnerships at Commonweal. One thing I love about Commonweal is our spirit of curiosity. It shapes everything we do from religion to politics to culture and the arts. Consider becoming a Commonweal associate today. Just visit commonwealmagazine.org forward slash donate. Your gift helps support everything we do, including this podcast. Now let's get back to the conversation. Unlike Dorothy Day, who kind of charged Exxon with the task of publishing her memoir, X-Men had a really hustle to convince Martin Luther King to publish his book with him. Yeah. Can you tell a little bit about how he got in touch with Dr. King and how that changed from a, you know, a proposed, a loosely proposed book of collected sermons to his definitive 
book on the Birmingham. Yeah. So amidst the Birmingham bus boycott of the mid-1950s, King was getting letters from New York City authors asking them to write a book. Some of them were saying, just write a book and we'll publish it. Others were saying, write a book about Montgomery. One of the first people to write was an editor at Harper. I'm forgetting his name now. It was not X-Men. X-Men didn't know about it. He wrote to King. And King wrote back and said, well, I'd like to write a book, but I'm really busy. And maybe I just publish sermons. You guys do that, right? Because I have a bunch of sermons. And so it got handed over to X-Men because the editor was, was in the trade division. And he's, oh, okay, I guess this isn't a trade book about Montgomery. This is a sermon book. So we have a guy who does sermon books. That's Eugene X-Men. Hands it over to X-Men. It, it gets on X-Men's plate. And different folks in his department have some minor interaction with King by letters. But meanwhile, King has at least a half a dozen offers from different publishing houses to write. And X-Men just decides to go down there. He just decides to go down to Montgomery. And he knocks on King's door and he convinces King to write his first book. And he does. And that becomes Stride Toward Freedom. And it's not really clear because we don't have a written record of exactly what he said or why King was convinced, but it could just be the simple thing that he showed up. The other people were sending letters and he showed up. And then it was on a very quick schedule. I think the other thing that may have helped X-Men in landing King as, as an author was that he understood that this was the Montgomery bus boycott was a religious event. It was a spiritual event. And even today, scholars, so many scholars argue about the civil rights movement. Was it political? Was it social? What was it? Was it religious? And it's so interesting how many people still don't see what X-Men intuitively understood as he was reading about it from afar, which was that this was a religious demonstration. This was a religious protest. This was led by ministers. This, the rhetoric of the civil rights movement as it was emerging then was the rhetoric of the black church. But he got that. And the rhetoric of the biblical prophets, he got that, he got that all too. X-Men published a diverse list of influential and let's call them sober-minded authors. And yet in his lifelong search for God, it dropped him into some atypical situations. He founded a commune in Southern California during World War II. He dropped acid in 1958, four years before Timothy Leary. And six years before the Beatles went to India, he found a guru there in 1962. How would you describe X-Men's spiritual quest? Fascinating, frenetic, global. He went to meet Albert Schweitzer in Africa as part of his spiritual quest too, the Nobel Prize winner, the second Nobel Prize winner he published alongside Martin Luther King. I just feel like he was obsessed with this experience he had, as he should have been. And he didn't understand it. And he wanted it to happen again. But he also believed that if other people had an experiential encounter with God, like he had, that the world would be a better place. And this is one very interesting thing about his mysticism. And almost all of his authors were mystics. This really surprised me. I knew that he had published a lot of bestseller, best-selling religion books, but basically every author he published had a mystical experience. That was a common thread between him and so many of his friends and so many, and so many of his authors. But all these friends and authors also agreed with him 
that mysticism should not be escapist. That if you really encounter God, God would not tell you to go sit in a corner and meditate for the rest of your life and try to have it happen again. God would tell you to go out in the world and do something good on behalf of peace and justice. And X-Men felt that the world was coming apart. The early 20th century was a period when there had been, in the late 19th century, so much confidence about the world moving forward together in progress. We have gone past the Middle Ages. We have moved into the Enlightenment. Things are getting better and better. And then come the wars and then come the, and the Great Depression between them and this crisis of meaning. And X-Men believed that God was the answer to that and that humans who had been touched by God would be changed and then they would go and make peace. They would go and make justice. In the book, you also describe his work as a, quote, genealogy of modern American religion, stepping stones across the stream of American consciousness from Protestantism to pluralism, from dogma to experience, and from institutional religion to personal spirituality. His influence seems to have anticipated the current trend of religious disaffiliation, the nuns, who, according to many surveys, today account for 30% of the population. Even better than anyone, I imagine, at this point. Do you believe this would have troubled him or would he have thought we swung too far away in the other direction? Yeah, that's a really good question. My, my first thought is no, because it's exactly what he wanted. Because he was more of what we would now call a spirituality person than a religion person. But what did he do when he came home from the commune in Southern California and the next Sunday rolled around? He went to Riverside Church and he listened to Harry Emerson Fosdick preach. What did he do a couple of days after dropping acid? He went to Riverside Church again. What did he do when he came home after meeting the guru in India? Went to Riverside Church. What did he do there? Did he just sit in the pew? No, but he was running, helping run the church. He was on the church committee. His wife was in Sunday school. So he believed in institutional religion, but he really believed in it as more a kind of social glue thing he didn't think he was ever going to see God in Riverside Church. He had, he never, that, I don't think that ever crossed his mind that would happen. He thought that the place where religion happened was the individual alone, praying or meditating, contemplation, or in small groups where a group of eight, 10, six, 12 people who knew and loved one another would sit around like he did for over two decades in New York City every Monday night for three or four hours, having a meal, discussing a book together, sitting in silence together. That was the way that, that, you, would, that you would encounter God. And so insofar as, as the United States, especially young people, have turned in recent decades, especially the last two, against institutional religion, I don't think he would be troubled by that. He would be excited that so many people were interested in yoga and in different Christian strategies for prayer and in Tai Chi or whatever it might be. I think he would be excited by that because he believes that's actually the way that people encounter God. Writing this book, you are able to measure X-Men's impact and consider his legacy. Are there lessons or clues we can glean from his work in the 20th century to help us better understand what the future of religion in America might look like? In the 21st? I think the big question that he surfaces for me is 
a nerdy religion question and also a very personal one, which is what is religion all about? Is religion good for anything? What aspects of religion are horrific and what aspects are useful? And he just repeatedly points us in the direction that James, William James also pointed us in, which is that religion is about experience and religion is about a human divine encounter. And that once one has had that human divine encounter, one's life is transformed and one can start to transform the world. And I think it's a powerful idea. Obviously, as a religious studies scholar, I know there's people who say religion is essentially social, you know, that it isn't essentially a personal thing. And people who want to say a lot of people, religious people, especially Christians, think religion is essentially about beliefs. We have these creeds and we say them and we believe them and that's what makes us who we are. I think that our society has really moved in the direction of the religion of experience, as I call it, in the direction of the culture of experience, this idea that what we most want is to have lived our lives when we die. And there's all kinds of ways to live them, but it isn't just about accumulating things. It's about having experiences. And I think that's a very powerful idea. I think it's a very problematic idea. And it's also a very inspiring idea. I think the people who marched on January um, 6th at the Congress were having an intense experience, in many cases, an intense religious experience. But so is Howard Thurman when he's, you know, standing on his trip to India and looking out and thinking about how he ought to create an interfaith church. And he goes back to San Francisco and he does it because of that inspiration. So I think. What he does for me is call attention to this idea of religion as experience. And I think that he helps explain why we in the United States are so obsessed with that and why that is in many ways a common faith of sorts in contemporary America for good or for ill. And he reminds us that one way that we came to believe that stuff was by reading books. And people still read books, but books are in competition now with television and with the internet and with podcasts and all kinds of other things. But he lived in an age where a book could really move a society, could move a country. And many of the books he published were able to do just that. It was very well said. Thank you, Miles. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Stephen Prothero's biography of Eugene X-Men is called God the Bestseller, How One Editor Transformed American Religion One Book at a Time. Published by HarperCollins. It's available wherever you get your books. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.